Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansbury, and today we're talking about the Texas Legislature. Now, normally on this show we focus on city government, but if you've lived in Texas for any period of time, you know that the decisions made by our state lawmakers have a significant impact on Austin. Plus, we're lucky enough to live in the state capital, which means we have more opportunities to make our voices heard than other Texans who live hours and hours away. But unfortunately, the legislature is also super, super confusing. So that's what we're going to focus on today. First, I'm going to go over some Texas Legislature 101 for you. And then we're going to hear from some of our state lawmakers who represent Austin in the legislature. Okay, so here are some of the basics. First off, the 88th Texas Legislative Session officially began on January 10th. And these legislative sessions are when our state lawmakers gather in that pink dome building in downtown Austin to pass a budget and new state laws for Texas. But the legislature actually only meets for a session every other year. And when they do meet, the sessions are pretty short, only 140 days, which means that things can happen really quickly, especially near the end of the session in the springtime. And just like in the national government, the legislature has a House of Representatives and a Senate. So there are 150 members in the Texas House and 31 members in the Texas Senate. And Republicans have a majority in both. Now, a key thing to note here, every Texan is represented by one Texas House member and one Texas Senate member. So if you're not sure who your representative is, be sure to click the link in our show notes to find out. It's really important to know who your state reps are when you want to start to get involved in this process. Okay, other key things to note about the ledge. Uh, Legislatures have been filing bills since November 14th, and they can continue doing so unrestricted uh, until the 60-day mark of the session. And during this time, thousands of bills will be filed, but most, quite frankly, will not pass. And that's because it's pretty difficult to get a bill passed in the legislature, especially within such a short time period. And these first 60 days usually operate at a much slower pace than the rest of the session. During this time, lawmakers can only pass bills related to the governor's emergency items, which at the time of this recording, he hasn't announced yet. Um, That's likely going to happen in February during the governor's state of the state speech. So anyway, right now, the legislature is mostly focused on filing bills, um, hearing from their constituents, and thinking about the budget. The state budget is pretty much the only bill the legislature is required to pass all session. And this year, things are looking especially interesting because of what has been called a once-in-a-lifetime session for the budget. And that's because Texas Comptroller Glenn Hagar has announced that the state is experiencing a 26% increase in general revenue, including a $32.7 billion surplus left over from the last budget cycle. That's a lot of money, (laughs) and it's now up to the legislature to decide how much of that they should spend and what they should be spending it on. Oh, and P.S., in case you're wondering... A comptroller, you know, the comptroller is in charge of the state's finances. He serves as the state's tax collector, accountant, revenue estimator, all of which are very important right now when we're talking about budgeting. All right, anyway, I feel like that sets up the basics pretty well. So let's get to the legislators. First up, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with State Senator Sarah Eckhart, who represents Senate District 14, which is a majority Democratic district that includes most of the city of Austin. And Senator Eckhart is also a Democrat, like most of the members of the legislature who represent the Austin area. Okay, let's go ahead and give that interview a listen. 
All right, I am here with State Senator Sarah Eckhart and talking the legislative session today. Things are starting to get rolling. Um, I wanted to have you in and talk a little bit about what people can expect to be seeing, what some of your priorities are for this session. So let's just let's just like get into it, I guess. The biggest thing that's on my mind, and I know I'm sure yours as well, is this year there's a big budget surplus in the that the legislature has to deal with. And one of the only thing the legislature has to do the whole session is pass a budget, right? So this is a, a big deal. Talk a little bit about that, that surplus. Sure. Uh, as Controller Hager says, this is probably a once in a lifetime surplus. We will probably never see anything like this uh in our lifetimes again uh 33 billion dollar surplus so this is a rare opportunity to really make some big investments in increasing uh prosperity for texans and decreasing the risks of poverty ignorance and disease for texans so um this is a a, a great opportunity i'm hoping that we will work together to make those big one-time investments in infrastructure uh, and also those ongoing investments in health and education. Okay, so let's talk more specifically. Like, what are some of the big buckets you'd like to see some increased investment go into? Sure. The, you know, the big investment that really, really needs to happen in our state to assure that we have prosperity into the future is in our water infrastructure. Water mm. infrastructure has been deeply, deeply underfunded. And Controller Hager and many others in leadership have identified that as a, a major area of investment this session. I could not be more uh, enthusiastic about that. Um, there will and can, be I, no can I ask to chime in on that? What, what does that mean, investing in water? What, is that, what could that look like? Where, where are we lacking? Sure. It means making a deep investment in the Texas Water Development Board so that they can distribute dollars to major water providers across the state uh, so that we can stop having so many leaky uh, old pipes um, that are uh, uh, it's generational infrastructure that just has not been improved because there wasn't the capital to do it. Uh, and so we are wasting a lot of water um, and also water quality is really suffering. Uh, as well as creating a fund specifically for greenfield projects to um, uh, deliver water, um, uh, major pipeline projects to make sure that every community in Texas has access to clean drinking water. Yeah, you know, I can imagine. Obviously, we all know Texas is a state that we deal with drought often, but sometimes what I hear leaders talking about these days is we also get floods a lot, but sometimes we don't even have anywhere to put the water, anywhere to store it, or that causes a problem too. So I imagine the infrastructure can help us with some of these like highs and lows, perhaps. And we are having more frequent highs and lows and more extreme highs and lows. And so it's important for us to do the kind of planning and investment necessary at the state level <laughs> for the kind of infrastructure that will protect us from floods, uh, that will store um, clean potable water uh, for the future and get it to the communities in deepest need. So um, that's one type of infrastructure. Another that we've heard a lot about from leadership is dispatchable energy infrastructure. Very important. I uh, would caution that we be sure to invest without putting our thumb on the scale exclusively for the benefit of carbon-based energy, because we are seeing a, uh, a a uh, big appetite inside industry for renewable energies. And that's going to, in, uh, that pace is going to continue and we don't want to favor one energy source over another. Let's, let's build that infrastructure, but not uh, 
uh, create um, disincentive for innovation. And, and what do you mean by dispatchable energy resources? This is something that can, what energy that can be deployed quickly if we're having really high usage, like we've been seeing sometimes in our winters and summers? Again, we're going, we, we are having more frequent and more extreme weather. And so we need to be planning and investing in dispatchable energy that can meet uh, our peak demand. For, for energy so that we can stay warm on a cold day and cool on a hot day so that our medical equipment can keep operating uh, and so that our industry can keep operating uh, even during these extremes. Okay, so we're talking about energy and water infrastructure. Any other big buckets where there's some talk around spending some of this surplus funding? There's also good talk on transportation and broadband infrastructure and shoring that up. We did not have a broadband plan until last legislative session. Uh, the state had not created any plan whatsoever for broadband. <laughs> um, but in order to pull down federal dollars for broadband infrastructure, uh, the state needed to tap dance quickly and come up with a plan. So we now have one. Uh, and now we are hoping to maximize the drawdown of federal, uh, federal infrastructure dollars uh, for a broadband infrastructure across the state. Uh, extremely important to future education as well as to future industry in Texas. And then of course, transportation infrastructure is always uh, an ongoing investment requirement in the state of Texas so that we can move people, goods, uh, uh, and services all across the state. Um, so there will be a significant investment at the federal level that could be matched with state investment with this uh, large surplus. We want to make sure that we maximize those federal dollars that are available in infrastructure. Right. And when we talk about transportation funding from the state level, is that always highways? Is there any opportunity for that to be other forms of transportation or does it kind of have to go into a highway fund? It does not have to go into highways, but I will tell you from a political standpoint, the state uh, has not shown an appetite for heavy investment in transit programs. That's predominantly done at the local level uh, uh, using local usually property tax dollars to match federal dollars to pull down for transit. So it's mostly local dollars and federal dollars paying for transit, while the state of Texas um, pretty much stays to highway infrastructure for rubber tire um, uh, users. Mm -hmm. So those were several infrastructure ideas. Mm -hmm. Are those things that could be getting some bipartisan support. They don't sound like the most controversial, but I know with spending money in general in Texas, that's difficult. But what's the vibe on some of these infrastructure ideas? I think that there's a high probability for bipartisanship on those big infrastructure projects. It's one-time money. Uh, it, most of the surplus is one-time money. And so those are one-time expenditures. So I think that those have a high probability. One area of infrastructure funding that we are going to see some uh, drama around is in shoring up state IT infrastructure so that the government of the state can plan and respond to Texans into the future. We've heard a lot about how the Health and Human Services and the Department of Family and Protective Services have uh, um, old and aging IT infrastructure. They're unable to extract uh, information from it. Uh, there were issues with not knowing where all of our uh, Department of Family and Protective Services, children in state custody actually were uh, because of data issues. 
uh, and also academics really struggling during the pandemic with getting uh, academics and um, public safety professionals, public health professionals, getting information out of the Health and Human Services Department regarding um, you know, where COVID was popping up and how to best address it. So that kind of IT infrastructure is also one-time infrastructure investment that really needs to happen. It's not sexy. Uh, it sounds like big government, uh, but really if we are to have a chance of identifying problems for the future, we really do need state IT infrastructure that can help us analyze what's happening now so that we can address it for the future. Mm -hmm. And then what other big issues do you have your eyes on? I, I feel like I've seen you talk a lot about mental health resources before. Can you talk about like the healthcare side of things, particularly mental health, the session, what you're looking at? Sure. And let me frame that up by saying there's been a lot of talk about property tax relief. I yes. love property tax relief. I hate paying my property taxes. <laughs> so I would love to see meaningful and sustained property tax relief. Meaningful and sustained property tax relief uh, would come if the state makes big ongoing investments in education and healthcare so that the local governments don't need to fill the gaps with property tax. Um, so I am uh, very enthusiastic that the Lieutenant Governor mentioned mental health care as one of his top priorities. Um, our current state hospital system um, is, is inadequate and even at full build out, it will only address a third of the current need for uh, hospital beds for mental health crisis. So we need to um, greatly expand our mental health in uh, uh, inpatient and outpatient capacity in the state of Texas. Right. Um, I mean, this is not a one-to-one, -one, but like Austin, for example, where you represent, you know, we've been really struggling with homelessness in the past few years. And that's one that I know a lot of local leaders have identified they could definitely use some state support on because the federal money has really dried up in mental health services and it's difficult for them to now foot this really growing bill. Well, the federal money hasn't dried up. It's called Medicaid expansion. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> we just won't access it. So the, the federal money is there, but we simply won't access it. Um, I, I do look forward to the possibility of drawing down some Medicaid expansion in, in discrete areas. But in the mental health care arena, uh, leadership has also spoken, um, um, I think, genuinely about uh, wanting to assist um, local law enforcement and corrections in this space. And one way to do that is for the state to use state dollars to reimburse local governments that are housing individuals with mental in mental health crisis because they can't get a bed. So um, if the state came in and paid for all of those individuals who are awaiting mental health care in county jails, um, that would greatly alleviate the property tax burden and also uh, um, I think incentivize the state to build the kind of um, inpatient and outpatient mental health capacity that's really needed. Right. And this is something you know a lot about because before you're a state senator, you're a county judge um, here in Travis County, which really runs our, our county jail system. It does, and the Travis County Jail is also the emergency mental health provider for um, a very large catchment area in Central Texas. 
and it's inappropriate that individuals are receiving um, mental health care in a jail setting rather than in a hospital or an outpatient setting. Um, that really does require some state investment in um, mental hospital and uh, outpatient uh, capacity, and we're just not getting it from the state. Once once we step into that space as a state, though, we will not only, if we were to pull down Medicaid, not only would we greatly improve people's lives, but I believe that there would be a pretty significant return on investment because uh, emergency mental health care is far more expensive than uh, upfront maintenance care that keeps people in their jobs and with their families and out of the criminal justice system um, and out of our emergency rooms, and certainly off of our streets in a, a state of homelessness, which is just a cruelty to them. Mm -hmm. And so what you're talking about here around this argument of property taxes is that if state funding is able to help out some of these local government systems, they will not, you know, it's it's local governments who are leaving property taxes on um, all of us that they might be able to lower those rates or not have to worry about having to provide so many services. Having been a local elected official, I can tell you firsthand, no local elected official looks forward to raising property taxes. Local elected officials only raise property taxes when there's a gap left by the state and human necessity and misery demand it. And that's what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. um, so those are some of the, you know, we talked about infrastructure, some of these surplus ideas. What are other just policy ideas that you kind of you know, are hoping to really champion this session or you've got your eyes on? Any sure. other big ones? Uh, yeah. I mean, my my big issues that I'm most interested in are uh, justice and public safety, healthcare and public health specifically, and resilience and emergency response. So I'm really looking forward to doing some work in those areas, um, as well as education. We have a, a, a bill that's an academic fresh start for individuals who started out in community college, um, bombed out. Um, but now they want to go back in and they want to be able to recover some of their credits. Um, we've also got some good bills in the criminal justice space as well um, that I'm hoping to, to get some traction on. Um, in the area of property tax, which I know a lot about, uh, I've got a bill to have a, a flat dollar homestead exemption, which I think would greatly relieve the homestead, homestead tax burden on individuals who are at the lower uh, um, lower income levels. So I'm hoping to get a hearing on that in local government. Flat uh, dollar meaning not a percentage as it is. Right. Yeah. So currently there's a flat dollar homestead exemption in the education, in public education, and mm -hmm. leadership is talking about increasing that. And I think that's very good. Um, but I think that we should also have a local option for a flat dollar exemption in uh, city and county taxes as well. Uh, it would be a great benefit to individuals at the lower income levels. Yeah. Uh, so I'm hoping that that gets a hearing. Um, I can flip through and tell you about some of our other bills. We've got yeah, let's go for it. Uh, uh, affordability is a big issue in housing. Uh, the state doesn't put really any significant dollars into creating housing stock. Uh, again, your your major investment in affordable housing is local dollars and federal dollars. Um, but um, my hope is that by tweaking the homestead exemption, we can make single family homestead ownership a little more affordable for folks. Uh, also improving some of our requirements around Section 8 landlord tenant relationships uh, so that landlords can't raise the rent mid lease 
uh, can't deny a, a, a unit to a person who's using Section 8 vouchers and also can't take a, an application fee for an apartment without alerting an individual to what the, the application process and, and forms include so that if there's a deal breaker, they know before they've paid the fee. Um, uh, I think that would help people out a lot. Um, we'll also be looking at the PFC statute, which uh, I won't go into that too much. It's a little bit in the weeds on public finance corporations. Um, in uh, in our workforce development programs, I'm going to be looking at ways that we can streamline the credentialing process for some of the industries and um, uh, workforce areas that we really need more folks like teachers, nurses, uh, social workers, um, looking for ways that the Workforce Development Board can help out with childcare, because childcare is a big barrier to getting employment, uh, and also looking for ways that we can make Texas um, a uh, workers' comp state. We're the only state in the union that does not require employers to participate in workers' comp. The only state in the union. Um, so I'm hoping that we can help with that. Um, in justice and public safety, I'll be standing with my friends, Senator Gutierrez and Senator Blanco on some uh, responsible gun ownership legislation, uh, which I think is deeply needed. Uh, and also looking for ways that we can improve the likelihood of appropriate storage of guns, whether they're in the home or in your car, since many uh, stolen guns that are on the black market in Texas are stolen from people's vehicles. Hmm. Um, we will also be looking at, uh, um, I have, uh, I've got some bills along with my Democratic colleagues for restoring uh, autonomy for reproductive health, uh, for expanding Medicaid to mothers a year after they've given birth, not just six months after they've given birth, um, and looking for ways to include on tax exemptions, uh, sales tax exemptions, state sales tax exemptions, uh, um, pregnancy test kits, um, as well as diapers and some other necessities for um, women who are uh, looking to get pregnant or trying not to get pregnant, um, and also in caring for their children after they've had them. Mm -hmm. um, we're also looking for ways to assist our law enforcement community in training programs that are really meaningful that, for them in the mental health space, and also ways for them to track data and report it up to the state so that we can have data-driven solutions to our mental health crisis that we're experiencing in the state of Texas. So that's just a few. There's going to be a lot more. We're right at the beginning. And that was State Senator Sarah Eckhart. Oh, and if you live in State Senator Sarah Eckhart's district and you want to connect with her, she recommends following her on social media, emailing, calling, or even stopping by her office in the Capitol Extension Building. And we'll include links to all of those things in the episode's show notes. Now, next up, we're going to hear from State Representative Vicki Goodwin. So Sarah Eckhart is in the Texas Senate, and Vicki Goodwin is in the Texas House. Vicki Goodwin represents District 47, which includes parts of West Austin, as well as the Bee Cave area. 
Oh, and Vicki Goodwin is also a Democrat. Okay, let's go ahead and give that interview a listen. I am here with Representative Vicki Goodwin, and we're talking Texas legislature. Um, let's let's get right into it. What are some of your your top priorities you're focusing on this session? Well, top of mind, particularly today, is school funding. Uh, we had a press conference this morning talking about raising teacher pay. I have a bill that would raise the basic allotment, which would do several things, including raising teacher pay, but it would just send more money to our schools from state funds, as opposed to from local dollars, which is what has happened recently, is the state is not picking up 50% of school funding, and so a lot of it is falling on the wealthy school districts, such as AISD. And uh, so we serve a lot of low socioeconomic students and a lot of special ed students. And uh, we've seen a lot of teachers leave the profession. You know, people go into it because they love, you know, instilling knowledge in children. But when there's a lot of stress involved with the job, from the high stakes testing to uh, just a lot of requirements that get put on our teachers, and then they aren't um, adequately paid and rewarded, then they tend to leave the profession. So one of the huge issues I think this session will be how to uh, increase, how much to increase the pay for our teachers. And so uh, this morning's press conference, Representative Tallarico offered up $15,000 across the board raise for all teachers. And so that's a, a starting point for our conversation in the house. Um, Great. Also, can, can I ask on that real quick? I feel like allotment is a, a term that folks are going to hear a lot about this session. Can you describe mm -hmm. that a little bit? Just explain, give a little more background on what you're talking about there and kind of how the state does fund public education right now. So I will say it's super complicated, but the basic allotment is just a guaranteed amount that every student in Texas gets to begin with. So right now that basic allotment amount is $6,160. So my bill would increase that up to $6,500. Um, another representative, Donna Howard, has started at $7,075. And there's different reasons for why we come up with different numbers. But on top of that, we have this formula that says if you have a student who's from a low socioeconomic family, they get a little bit more resources. So there's weight added to these different things. If they're a special ed student, they also get a, an extra weight. And so you put all of this through a formula and it calculates. Basically, um, we're spending roughly $12,000 per student in Texas. It just varies a lot depending on the situation of the student and the district. And so um, the, the basic allotment has to do with how much the state is putting in as opposed to how much a school district's putting into the funding. Got it. And then as far as the legislature's control over teachers' pay and talking about giving, you know, a raise to teachers, what role does the legislature pay? I mean, like play in teacher salary? Is it similar to that allotment formula? So yeah, the bill that we passed two sessions ago actually had a requirement that for every increase in the basic allotment, teacher pay had to increase at least, um, th or 30% of that increase had to go towards teacher pay. Hmm. And so um, really 
we might have to add something additional to the formula that says with this next increase, we want more of that to go towards teacher pay. However, I'll say that the local school boards, they set a budget every year. And for the most part, they know that in order to keep teachers or even in order to attract new teachers, they have to increase pay. And so I, I prefer to give the local school boards some flexibility in their budgeting, but I also want to make sure that with this increase that we are making sure teacher pay does increase too. Right. And what you're getting at here is kind of a fundamental tension that we've seen um, between, you know, some of these local school districts and the state around school districts like Austin feel like they're really being burdened by one recapture funds leaving the school district and going back to the state and also just feeling like the state isn't isn't contributing enough to the, the local schools. And so yeah. this is kind of seeming like trying to balance that out a little bit. Exactly. Yeah, I think um, if it were a 50-50 deal, people would feel a little bit better about it, right? You know, if the, if the state's share was 50%, then it would feel like we're in a partnership. And I think that's what we ought to do. Okay. So that's a little bit of some of the education things. What are some other top priorities you've got there on your list? So healthcare and mental health care, we've heard from so many people that we're in a mental health care crisis. Basically, we don't have enough psychiatrists, psychologists, mental health workers on the one side of it. And then we've got a lot of people dealing with a lot of mental health issues. And so I do have a couple of bills, one um, that would allow psychologists who've gotten extra education to be able to prescribe certain medications. So it would allow, because we have a shortage of psychiatrists in the state, it would allow for some of those emergency situations for a psychologist who's been working with a patient who's gotten extra education um, to be able to prescribe in certain situations. So that's one bill. And then I also have a bill that a constituent brought to me about AccuDetox. And it's um, basically acupun acupuncture uh, needles used in the ear that helps people who are dealing with substance use disorder or PTSD or anxiety and stress. There's a group of of healthcare professionals that went out to El Paso after that shooting, and they uh, helped people deal with their stress from that situation with using this AccuDetox procedure. So it's in state law. Um, we would just be updating the state law, which hasn't changed for 20 or 30 years. So um, I'm, in, I'm excited about those bills. I also have a bill to help the childcare industry. So we hear that we don't have enough childcare providers. And uh, so my bill would give a property tax exemption to nonprofit childcare providers who are in the Texas Rising Star program. And so it that has a little bit of limitations. It's similar to being accredited, um, but so that it would be great if more childcare providers were accredited or in this Texas Rising Star program. And then also it would, the exemption would give them more money to hire another teacher or another childcare provider and serve more students in their schools. Um, I have a drowning prevention bill that I really like. We got it through the house last time. It just didn't get through the Senate. So we're going to continue working on that. Also a highway safety bill, because a lot of people die on our highways in Texas too many people die on our highways. And so we're hoping that with a safety corridor that might help to slow people down on the highways. 
and maybe save some lives. Um, and I have one more election bill, uh, ranked choice voting. So we just went through a, a painful runoff election where only 15% of voters voted. We had two of my good friends, uh, former Senator Kirk Watson and former House member Celia Israel running against one another in the runoff, which became uh, a little uglier than it needed to. And that's just typical of a runoff election. You have to set yourself apart from, from the other candidate. And I think by having ranked choice voting, we would just eliminate all of that. It's It would save the city's money because Austin spent about a million dollars on that election and uh, it would increase voter turnout. We had over 50% turnout for the general election, but only 15% for the runoff. So Yeah, this is a really interesting one because Austin voters um, in a ballot proposition did approve ranked choice voting a year, year and a half ago, um, but it's still, I guess, technically illegal at the state level, so it hasn't been able to be implemented. So what you're talking about here is kind of uh, looking to try and alter that law. And again, ranked choice voting for people who aren't familiar is is a little bit of an instant runoff, it's also called. Basically, it allows you to rank your choices so you don't have to go back to the polls um, mm -hmm. a month later if no one has gotten more than 50% of the vote, which happens a lot in local elections, right? Yes, yes. It's happened in school board elections as well. So my bill would limit it to the nonpartisan local elections initially, just so that people can understand how it works. Yeah. And then, you know, other priorities I've I've heard you talk a lot about. I know you're um, a big environmental advocate and have done a lot on yes. that front. Um, yeah. Let's give some updates on some of the environmental issues, because I know that our Texas Commission on Environmental Quality has been going through the sunset process. Talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that, what you're kind of thinking about for the environment this session. Sure. So I have one bill that is the stewardship amendment, and it basically would put into the state constitution that it is a requirement of our state to <clears throat> ensure we have clean water, clean air, um, that we protect our environment for the current and future generations. That would go into the Bill of Rights in our constitution, and um, it would require that all levels of state government, all levels of government in the state of Texas are doing what they need to do to protect our environment. So that's a kind of a big umbrella bill that I'm excited about. And then um, we have a bill around well plugging. So we've gotten a lot of federal dollars to do some work around well plugging. When the oil industry leaves or finishes with an oil well, they oftentimes in the past have turned those wells over to the ranch owner uh, to the landowner. And that becomes what they call a P-13 well, simply because P-13 is the form that the Railroad Commission uses. And so from that point on, it's the rancher's responsibility. A lot of these wells that were drilled decades ago and were plugged decades ago are now having issues. And there's this mm -hmm. huge toxic lake in West Texas called Lake Beamer. It's been written about in Texas Monthly. And uh, it's uh, very bad for the environment. It's polluting, you know, anything that drinks from that lake essentially is likely to die because it is toxic. And so the you would think that with these federal dollars coming to Texas, something like that would be cleaned up by the Railroad Commission and the dollars from the federal government. But they have said, no, that's not our problem because it's a P-13 well, it was turned over to the landowner. And so we have a lot of that going on 
um, my bill would ensure that the original oil companies that were, are drilling wells now are going to continue to be held responsible instead of being able to just walk away from them. Mm -hmm. um, and then what about guns? I know this is obviously a, a difficult thing in the legislature, but I also know it's something I've, I've heard you speak about and communicate about anything on your agenda around like gun safety this session. Yeah, absolutely. I have uh, quite a few gun bills, actually. We're trying to figure out ways to make our community safer. And I just, um, after Uvalde, felt like maybe this session will actually get something passed. But it is a heavy lift in Texas. I, like several other members, have filed a bill to raise the age to buy an assault-style weapon from 18 to 21. So that's one that we're doing basically for the Uvalde families, because they feel very strongly that in that situation, had the age limit been 21 to buy an assault style weapon, perhaps that shooting might not have happened. Uh, we have another bill last session I worked with DPS to try to come up with something that law enforcement felt would be helpful in the arena of safety. And they said that there are a lot of people out there in Texas who have revoked or suspended handgun licenses with those licenses, they can still walk into a firearm store and buy a gun without going through a background check. DPS sends out a letter saying, hey, your license has been revoked or suspended for whatever reason, please mail it back to us. Mm -hmm. But people don't always do that. Yeah. And so this bill would simply say that firearm sellers would have to check a database to ensure that the license being used to purchase that gun is valid. It's not revoked or suspended. And if it is, then they can't sell a gun to that person without a background check. So that's um, a bill that I worked on last session. I had some hope for it, but it just last session, the conversation was around permitless carry. This session, I'm really concerned that what the gun owners of America and other gun advocacy groups are trying to get is allowing teachers to carry guns into schools without any requirements. And I just, that concerns me greatly. So I think we're also going to be pushing back against things like that. We have a Marshall program, which I think is the best we can have as far as allowing teachers to have guns in schools. The Marshall program is something that a school board has to approve. Uh, the idea of allowing teachers to go in carrying schools into a gun, into a, a school without the community agreeing to that is just is just terrible. And what about you know for your constituents? What are the best ways for for people to get involved to either contact you or make their voice be heard during the session? I think the legislature can feel really overwhelming for a lot of people. It's hard to understand like where your time could be best spent. What are some things you recommend? How can folks get in contact with you or, or get engaged? Um, well, you can easily find my contact information on the House website, and it's pretty simple. It's just house.texas, spelled out, .gov. And my staff are wonderful at providing a resource for people that might want to advocate for or against a bill. Uh, in fact, on February 3rd, we're going to have a little constituent training session for people that are wanting to come to the Capitol. It's a way for them to come in, learn about the process from my staff members, and uh, then be able to advocate. When we're in a hearing, it's really helpful for me as a legislator to see how many people are for or against a bill. It's also helpful to get testimony, personal stories about an issue. 
And so some, sometimes people are comfortable giving the testimony, but if they're not, they can also just weigh in by saying that they're for or against a bill. And that's very helpful. And that they can do that by emailing or by registering at the Capitol with that, those little cards, are they still that kind of? Yeah, there's actually little kiosks Kiosks that like iPads where you enter your information and then you can say you're for or against a whole list of bills that are going to be heard that day. And that was State Representative Vicki Goodwin. And if you want to attend that legislative advocacy training day she was talking about, we just added details about it to our community calendar, which you can find at theaustincommon.com forward slash events. And that's pretty much our show for today. Hopefully we'll give you, that gives you a little preview of what's to come in the legislature. And don't worry, we'll be sure to share more updates as things progress. Uh, The Austin Common Radio Hour is brought to you in partnership by the Austin Common and Co-op Radio. The Austin Common is a local news source that helps Austinites be informed and make a difference in their community. You can learn more about the Austin Common by visiting theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. Co-op is a cooperatively run community radio station based in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of Co-op's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. This show is hosted by me, Amy Stansbury, and produced by John Hoffner. You can find podcasts of the Austin Common Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcast. And one quick friendly request on this, if you like our show and you find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. It really does help us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin, so thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.